concerning your Bibles with me to 2 Kings chapter 2 this morning. 2 Kings chapter 2. If you remember all the way back in uh, January, we began this, um, uh, this, I'll be a few and far between, uh, sermon series on uh, Elisha the prophet, uh, who was called in 1 Kings 19. Um, and if you remember during that time, Elijah had been in the middle of his ministry while the nation of Israel itself was kind of trending downward further and further into sin, especially under the reign of, of wicked King Ahab. Elijah had just won his very shocking grand victory on Mount Carmel by raining fire down from heaven and and defeating the 850 prophets of Baal. Uh, But immediately after that, it turns around and Elijah is being chased by Queen Jezebel and his life threatened. Uh, And so Elijah had had these visions of a, a great revival in the nation a mass turning to God, wickedness being defeated, and it didn't happen. So Elijah was um, uh, greatly disappointed in what he thought was going to happen. And God had told him, you just have to wait. You're not going to be the one to see it, but I'm going to tell you to do this and this and this, and it is coming. It is coming. You just have to wait. Actually, in fact, you're not going to see it but you're going to be an intricate piece to that plan. And so the calling of Elisha was was the very first step uh, and a great reassurance to Elijah that God was still working. And now it's been a a number of years. Um, Elijah has still been working, although we have not seen Elisha himself per se until chapter 2. And uh, so Elisha has been training for a while. And today is the day that Elijah is going to be taken up to heaven. Uh, and it turns out it's, it's, it's not easy to lose a great leader like Elijah. It is very, very difficult. Um, and this chapter in 2 Kings 2 is, uh, I'm, I'm sure you'll be familiar with at least parts of it, uh, at least one major part and maybe one smaller part. Um, pretty well-known chapter. Um, we're going to take a look as Elisha takes over for Elijah today. Uh, Before I read this chapter, though, let's pray together. Our great God, you do speak, and you give new life to the dead through your word. We have experienced that being brought from the the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of life, and we do ask that you would uh, do that again within our own hearts as we read your word, as we hear it, would you, uh, would you please work in our hearts through your spirit to, to give us new life, to bring us closer to you? Uh, and as we, we did just pray, show us the immeasurable riches of your grace through your gospel in Jesus Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Second Kings chapter 2. Now, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. 
And the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? He answered, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two men, uh, the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them, as they both were standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water, and the water was parted to the one side and to the other, till the two of them could go over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. He said, You have asked a hard thing. Yet, if you see me as I'm being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And as Elijah went up by a whirlwind in, uh, excuse me, and Elijah went up to, excuse me, (laughs) and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. And he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other. And Elisha went over. Now when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed down to the ground before him. And they said to him, Behold now, there are with your servants fifty strong men. Please let them go and seek your master. It may be that the spirit of the Lord has caught him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. And he said, You shall not send. But when they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, send. They sent therefore 50 men, and for three days they sought him but did not find him. And they came back to him while he was staying at Jericho, and he said to them, Did I not say to you, do not go? Now the men of the city said to Elisha, Behold, the situation of the city is pleasant, as my Lord sees, but the water is bad, and the land is unfruitful. He said, bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day, according to the word that Elisha spoke. He went up from there to Bethel. And while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him saying, Go up, you bald head, go up, you bald head. And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. 
And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. And from there he went on to Mount Carmel. And from there he returned to Samaria. Amen. Uh, So Elijah is essentially on his farewell tour. He knows he's about to be taken up to heaven. Elisha knows he's about to be taken up to heaven. All of the sons of the prophets know he's about to be taken up to heaven. And so he goes from Bethel to Jericho to Jordan. And every stop that he makes, this this tension is, is kind of hanging in the air. Everybody knows what's about to happen. Um... And everybody, well, I should say Elisha, in a sense, refuses to talk about it. Uh, it's, it it's a little bit strange. Uh, it could be that there are a lot of things about this chapter that are, that are a little bit strange. Um, for instance, why is Elijah trying to leave Elisha behind? Um, it's, it's tough to say. It could be that uh, Elijah, in a sense, is just sort of testing Elisha to see whether or not he'll stick with him to the end. Why does Elisha want the prophets to stop talking? It could be out of respect for the loss of a leader. It could be that he's already grieving in a sense. I mean, I think we, I think we, most of us probably know a little bit about that, that tension that can hang in the air. Um, it could be a, could be a parent, could be a grandparent, could be a spouse. We know the final days may be upon us. It's difficult to talk about. Um, and it is, it is hard for these men to lose the leader that's been with them for 40 years, maybe. But why, why is this hard, really? Well, remember what Elijah has done and remember what Elijah has signified for this people. One of the greatest acts in the entire Old Testament I mentioned earlier is him raining fire down from heaven on Mount Carmel and putting 850 prophets of Baal to shame. Elijah constantly has gone toe-to-toe with Ahab and Jezebel and come out on top. And so in in the midst of a nation, in the midst of a regime that has institutionalized idolatry, They bow the knee to Baal. They kiss Baal. They kill and they persecute the prophets of God to the point where they need to hide in caves. Elijah stands alone as the army of God. Elijah is the horses and the chariots of God. And so what do you expect to happen when you lose that prophet? What, what are the sons of the prophets going to do? What is Elisha going to do? I mean, it's not just like the end of an era and transitioning to somebody new. It's, it's, it's the end of, of hope, almost. And really, all of it kind of builds to a head in verse 14. After Elisha has gone and Elisha picks up the cloak and he just cries out, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? Where has his spirit gone? That, that's the great crisis, that they have lost their great spiritual leader here and, and in essence start to lose hope. What's going to happen? 
And so we can, we can tie this to um, ourselves and uh, losing great spiritual leaders for ourselves. What happens when we lose our, our great pastor that we love so much? What happens when we see celebrity preacher after celebrity preacher fall away, get caught up in some sort of scandal? Um, maybe go a different direction with it and say, what about the spiritual partner that I've had for years and years and years? What happens when I lose my spouse? All of these securities, all of these, these indispensable resources, we thought that this is, this is how God is working. What, am I, what do I do when I lose it? How are we going to survive this now? Where has God gone? How am I going to experience him now? I uh, listened to a sermon yesterday at, at Presbytery where one of the, the preachers preached on Psalm 22, the psalm that Jesus cries out on the cross, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in essence, that's what Elisha feels like here and the experience we feel a lot that we've lost God. Where has he gone? Why is he not speaking to me anymore? Why is he not there So how do we survive this? What are we going to do now? What's my church going to do now? What is my family going to do now? How am I going to go on? And the answer that God gives comes in the form of three consecutive miracles in this chapter. Where is the Lord? God answers three times. Answer number one comes from the Jordan River. Answer number two comes from Jericho. And answer number three comes from Bethel. So where is the Lord? Let's look at the Lord himself, his answers to that question. Uh, Beginning in verse 14, Elijah has been swept up to heaven. And God's first answer to where is the Lord is his power that still works. And so Elisha begins retracing the footsteps of Elijah so to speak. Um, You'll notice all throughout the rest of this chapter, he goes back to the same places that they just came from, and that's deliberate. That's not random. He begins mimicking everything that Elijah has done, right? So he picks up the cloak, and he strikes the Jordan, just like Elijah did, and the waters part, just like Elijah And so all of the the prophets, they've seen this from a distance, and so they, uh, really right away in verse 15, we we get the answer to the question, where is the Lord? The prophets say in verse 15, the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and and bowed to the ground before him. They they know what's happened. They recognize it. But really, there's more to this than just Elisha and Elijah. Now, I mentioned last time we looked in 1 Kings, there's this sort of pattern we see in Scripture with one prophet followed by another. Uh, We see it with Moses and Joshua. We see it with Elijah and Elisha. And we see it, why we went to Luke 3 this morning, with John and Jesus. Do you remember how Joshua took over from Moses, right? Moses great act besides the 10 plagues was to split the Red Sea in two and and deliver the people from the oppression of Egypt. And what's the first thing Joshua does? He parts the Jordan River. 
And the people walk across on dry ground. Where is the God of Moses? Where is the God of the ten plagues? Where is the God of the Red Sea? He's still there in Joshua. Where is the God of Elijah? The God who rained fire down from heaven. The God who cursed King Ahab. He's in Elisha. He's there. He's still working. The God of Moses is the God of Joshua, is the God of Elijah, is the God of Elisha, is the God of David, is the God of Isaiah, is the God of Paul, is our God. He is still there and he is still working. It's like a, it's, it's really just like this immediate splash of cold water on the faces of these prophets and out of Elisha himself, and, and it pulls them all out of the depths of despair. Right? It's, it's, it's so easy for us to have a myopic view of what God is doing, to have, to have a, such a, a small picture and window of what God could do and of what he is doing. We forget that our God has been around for eternity, right? He's been around since Moses and Elijah. He's been around since Paul. He's been around since the time of the Reformation, He's always there for his people. God's power is not tied to any particular location. It's not tied to any person. It's not tied to any era. Uh, we read last week uh, in our Old Testament reading from Numbers 11 when Moses was questioning, how are we going to feed this people, God, with the meat that they want? And the Lord says, is my arm shortened? Did you not see the ten plagues in the Red Sea? Don't you think I can feed them meat? Uh, another way one commentator put it is, God's arm does not atrophy over time. He doesn't lose the strength or the power. The effects of the Holy Spirit do not wear off over time. And so we need to be careful about idolizing people, eras, pastors, theologians, because none of those people mean anything. It's God. It's God's power all the way through. Again, somebody else put it, our help is in the name of the Lord, not in the charisma of his servants. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians uh, verse 3, what are Apollos and Paul? Who are they? They're servants. God is the one who gives the growth. Um, a couple weeks ago, I was at a uh, pastor's conference retreat thing in Mississippi. My former pastor was teaching on that, that very text. And one of his big applications for pastors, I think it extends to all of us in the church, be willing to be forgotten. That's a hard thing. We like our name to be remembered. I mean, I like my name to be remembered. At least maybe you don't. You could be more holy than me. Um, that Actually, this very thing happened to me while I was in Mississippi. I gave a children's devotional in the middle of a sermon, and three days later, somebody had come up to me. Wasn't, didn't somebody just talk about such and such in the Bible? And I was like, that was me. <laughs> I, how do you not remember my name? How do you not remember who I am? 
but it doesn't remember. Look, the word of the word of God was remembered. God's teaching was remembered, and that's all that matters. Be willing to be forgotten. And so as we come to Luke chapter 3, the transition between John and Jesus. This is another seismic shift in Israel's history going from one prophet to another. John, of course, is a uh, portrayed in the Old Testament. He's led up to as an Elijah figure, right? He's prophesied as being a new Elijah who is going to come and prepare the way for somebody else. He's, his ministry is full of confrontation. It's full of fire that we read in Luke 3. It's full of um, proclaiming repentance and turning away from your sin. John is very much like Elijah. And at the end of John's ministry here, it's, it, it's curious, isn't, isn't it? Because we, we end in our reading in Luke 3, Jesus, first of all, where is he? The Jordan River, right? He's being baptized and the Holy Spirit is falling upon him like a dove. But here's something more deliberate, I think, that Luke is, is, is writing, uh, the style in which he writes. Do you know who baptizes Jesus? It's John. But before we even get to Jesus' baptism, Luke writes about John being killed and beheaded, gone off the scene for good. Why does Luke do that? Why does, he, why does he bring forward this execution of John? Because in order for Jesus to increase, John must decrease. All of the prophets that come before must decrease. It's all about Jesus. 2 Kings 2 is not about Elisha's great power. 2 Kings 2 is about Jesus and how everything points forward to him. And so all of the, the power and the hope that you feel with, with Elisha coming onto the scene, slapping the water and having it, having it part in two, all of the hope that that infuses in Israel and, and comforts us with, no, it's not even about Elisha. It's supposed to point forward to Jesus. Jesus is the hope of his people. All of these prophets have to give way to the only one great prophet and savior. All of it looks forward to Jesus. He is the one through whom God's power is always working, no matter what we lose or who we lose. And that's the first answer from God from the Jordan River, that his power is still working. Here's the second one. Starting in verse 19, the answer from Jericho. Now again, this geographical pattern that Elisha is walking is very, very deliberate. It's not random. He's going back to Jericho now. Uh, and what do we read about Jericho? Um, the water is bad and the land is unfruitful. Um, that's, a kind of a, that's kind of an interesting little phrase at the end of verse 19. The land is unfruitful. When, when the writer says it's unfruitful, that word is almost exclusively used in the Old Testament for parents losing their children. And so I think this likely means a lot more than just, we've got a bad water supply and can't grow crops. I think it really means this water is killing people. 
It's killing our children. It's causing us to miscarry. Our animals can't give birth. This water is lethal. More than that, though, of course, what do you remember about Jericho? The walls come tumbling down, right? It was the first city that Israel conquered as they came into the promised land. What you may not remember is that at the end of Joshua chapter 6, after walking around the city for seven days, after flattening it to the ground, Joshua proclaims a curse on the city. He says, Cursed is anyone who rebuilds this city. At the cost of your firstborn, you will lay its foundations. At the cost of your second son, you will build its gates. Fast forward to King Ahab's reign, 1 Kings chapter 16. What happens? A man named Heel decides to rebuild Jericho. And the writer says it was at the cost of his firstborn son that he built its foundation and the cost of his second son that he built its doors. Jericho is a cursed city. Um, from, from Deuteronomy and Leviticus, all of the, the different curses that we read really do apply to Jericho. Cursed shall you be in the city and cursed shall you be in the field. Your, your basket will not bear fruit. Your womb will not bear fruit. Your ground will not bear fruit. Your flocks will not bear little ones. And what happens in the cursed city? Elisha heals it. He blesses it. This, this gives us hope for God's grace in any situation. God's grace, here's the second answer that God gives. His grace still heals. Even when you lose hope. Even just think of Jericho. It's been lying uh, either flattened to the ground or been under God's curse for 500 years from Joshua to Elisha. And it, what, what sin can't God heal you from? What sin can't God forgive? If he can forgive the cursed city of Jericho and its wicked people, why can't he forgive you? All of the, any past guilt that you may feel about something that's happened in your life that you just can't get over, any sort of irreconcilable sin or brokenness between you and another person, God can heal it and God can forgive it. I think even, even the church, as much as we, we, we believe that God saves and has all the power and forgives, I think we, we need to recover this idea that God can literally heal and literally save and literally forgive anything. God takes delight in taking the most curse-ridden cities and making them a bright, bright picture of his grace. He loves to forgive. He loves to save. He loves to heal. And so when you think he can't tolerate you for one more second, when you think he can't welcome you into his presence today, you go to Jericho and you say, here is your God. His grace heals still. Here's answer number three from Bethel. Verse 23, 
Where is the Lord? Um, this is, uh, again, probably one of those stories that, that you have heard of and you don't know what to do with it. <laughs> this is definitely one of those passages that, that cause people to uh, discredit the Bible or think, think poorly of it. Um, does Elisha just need a sense of humor? Uh, or somebody else said, did Elisha just need decaf that morning? <laughs> well, another historical refresher for you. What do you remember Bethel from? Bethel is the central city of golden calf worship. Bethel is one of the two cities that wicked King Jeroboam, all the way at the beginning of Israel's history, set up a golden calf in, just so that the people wouldn't go south to the real temple. And so Bethel is an apostate city. They're a city that worships false gods and idols, and... um, you don't need to explain this away. My, my text says small boys. Your text may say a different version of that. Probably the best guess is these young boys are somewhere from 12, 18, anywhere from 12 to 18, probably. It is very, very young. And yet, this was not a spontaneous meeting. You see, as Elisha is passing by or, or maybe even coming to the city, the small, these small boys deliberately come out of the city to meet him and to jeer at him. Um, more than just making fun of Elisha's hair, whatever that is, um, they're not so much making fun of his baldness as they are, really the phrase, go up, is the real insult. Uh, They're telling him to get out of here. Keep on walking up the road past the city and never come back. We don't want you here, Elisha. And where are a bunch of 12-year-olds going to hear this? They're not going to come up with it themselves, right? This is endemic of the entire city. And, and, And surely endemic of the entire nation of Israel. These people are mocking the messenger of God, despising his words, scoffing at God's prophets. And that is a serious offense. Those words come from 2 Chronicles 36. They they mock the messengers of God, they despise his words, and they scoff at his prophets. And it goes on to say, until the wrath of the Lord rose up against his people, until there was no remedy. Leviticus 26, again, in the middle of the covenant curses, the Lord says, if you walk contrary to me and to my commandments, wild beasts will come up and bereave you of your children. This is um, God's covenant curses coming down upon an apostate people. Covenant infidelity brings covenant curses. And really, to top it all off, you see, uh, Elisha uses um, the name of the Lord when he curses them. And if if Elisha were in any way in the wrong here, the Lord would not have done this. But this is a city that is covenantally unfaithful to the Lord and mocking him. Even the judgment of God is still here. That's answer number three. God's judgment that still frightens us and still should frighten us. 
For those of us who know this God, he does not take mocking lightly. He does not take despising lightly. He does not tolerate grumbling. He is a holy God who demands our all. And Peter tells us, fast forward to his epistle, judgment begins at the household of God. We, we, the church of everybody, must be faithful to God and fearing him. And we should know what, what happens when we are unfaithful, what happens when we turn away, what happens when we forsake Jesus. God is still there. Elisha is the Lord's prophet, endowed with his power, speaking God's word, whether that means blessing those who are cursed or cursing those who are apostate. The Lord is still there working. And again, like I said earlier, 2 Kings 2 is not just about Elisha. It's about the Lord continuing to work era after era, generation after generation, and he does that through Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate prophet of God who, who is endowed with his power, who speaks God's word, and who at, at the end of time will be the one to utter both blessing and curses upon everybody. This is the, the, the splash of cold water that we need, the, the shot in the arm, the thing that should, should lift us up out of despair when we feel like we don't know where the Lord is right now. It stirs us to have both a humble fear, but also an exciting sort of hope that God is still there. And so what do you do in the crisis when you lose hope? You look to Jesus. You look to the Jordan River. You look to Jericho. You look even to Bethel. And you look to the cross. Everything may be gone, but the Lord is still there working. The cross is the great assurance of that, that he will never leave you nor forsake you to the point of even dying in your place. He is with you at all times, and so the Lord is there, even when you can't feel him. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we do um, praise you for your wondrous work. We praise you that we don't need to look to any person or any time period, any earthly thing to, to make sure that you're still here. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you for Jesus Christ, both of whom are, are never far from us. Thank you that we do not experience that curse that you have forsaken us and left us. Thank you that Christ has borne that penalty for us on the cross. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that, that you would keep convincing us of that truth. Lord, drag us up out of the pit of hopelessness and despair. Work in our hearts, remind us, prick us, that though we can't feel you, you are still working. Give us a glimpse of the light. Give us a glimpse of your power. Give us a glimpse of your grace when we need it most. We pray, Lord, that even uh, amongst our body, 
and amongst our, our family and our friends, that even, even the things that cause us to, to dread uh, and to grieve uh, and to run away from you the most, we pray that you would do something about that. We pray that you would show yourself to be the God who is a, an ever-present help in time of need, an ever-present refuge, and the God who binds up the wounds of the brokenhearted. Be near to us, Lord, as we draw near to you. And we ask this in Jesus' name.